Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. And I'm really pumped for you guys to hear this one. This is an episode that I've been wanting to remake for quite a while. I had done it originally back when I was first starting out and literally was just using my cell phone and uh, wasn't editing in post or anything like that. So the audio quality is better. But I also brought on some help to, uh, to help kind of make this argument you know, about ending the war on drugs. Uh, brought on Kevin Hobby, Rex Lawhorn, and Jose Gallison. And here's what we did. Took the five most commonly used arguments against ending the war on drugs, and we just completely ripped them to shreds. This is one of those episodes that I have really, really put a lot of work into as far as like, you know, finding counter arguments and things like that. And my guests also did the same. And, and the assumption that this episode actually makes it into the hands of somebody who doesn't normally listen. I also made sure that we didn't cuss a whole lot. Um, I think there's like two cuss words in this entire thing. So, you know, you're free to listen to this and not have to worry about who could walk in. I mean, granted, you know, we are talking about drugs and whatnot. So, Um, but this will probably be the only episode that I won't have to put the explicit tag on, but I did that because I want you guys to be able to share this with other people. I want you to be able to take this episode and present it to anybody who you come across and think that they might actually benefit by listening to it. So, um, with that, I'm going to stop rambling and I'm going to bring on, bring the guys on. Here you go. All right, and I am here with three very good friends of mine. Uh, I got Kevin Hobby, I got Jose Gallison, and I got Rex Lawhorn. Uh, and we'll just one by one, you guys introduce yourselves. I'm, I'm really grateful that you guys came on, and uh, we will start with you, Rex. Hey, I'm Rex Lawhorn. I'm just a libertarian activist here in Oklahoma, off-gridding lifestyle and kind of a policy nut. So I paid a lot of attention to how what the government does affects the free markets. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to give you some good insight here. Right on. I don't doubt that you will. And uh, what's up, Jose? What's up, man? <laughs> hey, uh, I'm Jose Galison. Uh, I have the um, podcaster, the No Way Jose podcast. Um, Pretty much, I'm uh, just another libertarian voice. I mean, that's not normally exactly what I always focus on. I generally try to focus on the cultural topics, but I mean, that's my shtick as well. Um, so far as like where I come from on this conversation, uh, I'm a prior drug user. I've done quite a, done a slew of drugs in my time. 
I'm not the stats and numbers guy, but I can tell you from my perspective from doing drugs before. Um, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, just so you know, me and uh, Drew did a great episode on this very subject. We literally did a review of all the drugs. So because we we come from the perspective, like we think it's good to if you're going to, you're going to do it. So it's good to have an educated like, you know, what you're going to do. And it's not a saying you should or shouldn't do it. It's just good to be educated on the topic. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. That's really all I got for that. Absolutely. Love the shameless self plug. Absolutely. Check out that episode. Uh, and what's up, Kevin? How you doing, sir? Hey, what's up, man? I'm Kevin Hobby. Um, I'm just another libertarian with another podcast, one of the 7,000. Um, where, where I'm coming at in this uh, deal is uh, I've perused drugs as well, but I'm uh, not as much as Rex, but pretty, pretty in tune with the regulations and how those affect people and have seen it in my family. Um, I don't have any personal experience with getting caught, but um, was able to uh, start a business and did pretty well with skills that I learned from dealing drugs. So that's what I'm bringing. That is that, you know, and that's funny. There's a lot of people that I know of man who came from that lifestyle. And, and once addicts can figure out how to utilize those survival skills that they had on the streets into the business world, it usually translates pretty well. But, um, so there it is. That's the cast and crew. I think that this is really going to be an episode that um, we're going to be able to put forth on down the road. And this is going to be an airtight case against the naysayers, you know, the ones who want to keep uh, this, this whole failed war on drugs going. And with that, I'm going to get right into it. And this is how the format's going to work. I have five arguments that are more or less the, the most common ones that are used and one by one we're going to deal with these arguments and we'll just go around in the same order that that we introduced everybody in and i'll finish it up but with that let's just kick her off okay first one being if drugs are legal drug addiction will be right widespread and rampant rex what do you have to say on that so it's pretty obvious from looking the way society runs right now that that is not the case, pure and simple. Uh, drugs have been readily available for a long period of time. We have multiple examples of things that were prior prohibited that we didn't see a huge upsurge on. And as a matter of fact, we see a downturn after prohibition ends in the use. Because what winds up happening with the current black market system is it makes it for the people who recognize that they have a need to, they have a problem and that they need to get help. They do not have the means to do that right now. One, because they are dealing with uh, illegal people um, on the outside. So there's no legitimate source for them to go through without putting themselves at risk from uh, the law enforcement system getting involved or social services taking their kids or the sheriff coming to take their property or whatever. So the second that they admit that they have a problem, they've either got to have the right resources that they can go to with privacy or they're running a risk. So they wind up stuck in that trap and committing more crimes and such in order to try to get themselves out of it. Uh, Portugal ended criminalizing drugs for people, putting people in jail for that sort of stuff. And what they did find is that addiction went down, drug use went down, and that's everything from heroin to methamphetamines to cocaine to even the lesser ones like marijuana, tobacco, and alcohol. Um, when they had the opportunity available to get the help, 
they get the help and use winds up going down. There's a lot more arguments to it, but I'll pass it on. Fantastic argument. All right. You what's, what's up, Isaiah? What do you think? What do you say on this? I, I figure a good, good way to look at this is I, I mean, I disagree because obviously, because uh, the, the, the way, the way I would take this is to say that, that drug addiction is going to be more rampant. I actually think a function of it being illegal has led to that. Cause for me, I, we went into an episode before that I, my issue is pills. I was, I got addicted to pills. And the big issue, I think, is if we had been in a society where it was, you know, legal and, you know, there was more knowledge on the subject and it just wasn't this, you know, because people come off as just say no and you just think I'm going to do this drug and then I'm going to be addicted. And then when you don't, you go, oh, it's not so bad. But what most people don't realize is addiction isn't jet for most things. I haven't done all the drugs, but I haven't encountered a drug yet that I do once and I'm magically addicted all of a sudden. So and but it's kind of how it's almost proposed to you as a, as a young, young person, you know? And so when you find out it's not the case, you kind of, you kind of find yourself doing it more and more until you eventually are addicted. And so people don't have a good idea of what addiction really is. And I think that's a function of it being illegal. And so the legality, I think would actually reduce that. Like, I, I just don't feel like that would be something that would have occurred for me had it been legal. And yeah, I mean, that's, I really don't have much else to say. I just, I, I don't think it's going to do, that would be the case. I think, yeah, I think is you, if you have a freer, open, more society where people are educated on the topic, these things don't happen because I would have probably known the pitfalls of, Hey, you know, this is what addiction really is. And I probably wouldn't have fallen into that trap because I kind of fell into a false sense of security when I started going down that route when it came to pills. So yeah, that's all I have to say on it. Yeah. That's good shit, man. All right. What's up, Kevin? Um, my argument against that is just because something is legal, you're not automatically going to want to do it. You know, it's not a purge type situation where all of a sudden you can murder people. So you're going to just automatically become a serial killer and anything that you want, you can get like, I've never, I have never in my life, not, not been able to procure whatever drug it was that I was looking for whenever I wanted it. You may have had to go to some seedy places and pay some people off and things like that, but you can find it. So if you want to find it, you're going to find it. And one of the ups to a legalization or a decriminalization is that because there's a market for it, what you're going to find is going to be cleaner. Um, you know, studies have shown that the dirtier the drugs, the more addictive they are because they mix them with different things. You may not actually be addicted to the drug itself. You may be addicted to one of the pieces in it. You know, it's like tobacco. Everybody says, oh, you get addicted to tobacco. Well, you don't, you get addicted to nicotine. And with, with most drugs, I've found that the dirtier the drug, the more powerful it is, the more of these effects that you get, the more you're going to want to come back for it. So if you had a, a more free market, you'd have cleaner drugs. You'd also have better treatment. And like Jose said, to piggyback off him, you would have a better idea of what you're getting into because like the first time I did ketamine, I had no idea what it was. Somebody told me it was a horse tranquilizer. It was going to make me feel great. That's what I did. And just rolled with it. Like you don't know because there's, there aren't like these reviews out there. You know, it's not like buying an energy drink where there's 50 websites and you can see what, what your, what effects you're going to get. Yeah. Without a doubt. And you know, that's that kind of thing that the dare program gets so incredibly wrong is putting weed and heroin on the same level. You know, for me personally, I had no idea. Like my family wasn't, nobody in my, my upbringing was, was addicted to drugs or, you know, narcotics weren't on a piece of, of my upbringing. So literally the only knowledge that I had prior to using was dare. And when dare said, Oh, weed's just as bad as heroin. And I tried weed and the worst I got was a case of the munchies, you know, it, 
it was pretty, it was like an instant thing in my head to think, okay, they lied about this. They're lying about all of it. And so, back off. Oh, sorry. I thought you were pausing there. I was no, going to say piggyback off Kevin's point. I had a much easier time when I was in high school getting drugs than I had getting alcohol. So, I mean, that's just anecdotal, but that was totally the case. So yeah, I mean, that's really, yeah. <laughs> that's a solid point too. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So and, and keeping these drugs illegal, it's actually causing a exponentially greater amount of use. Um, and I, I want to get nerdy for a second. You know, I, I have this article that I wrote on Medium a while back. And so let's just remove the argument that there's somehow some set of morals that are attached directly to the law as it is currently codified, right? So on the assumption that the the second that drugs become legal, you know, my 60-year-old next door neighbor is all of a sudden going to want to try out black tar heroin. Um, we can look at the data from prior to the prohibition era here in the States and afterwards. And America's, you know, we we have statistics going back to the 1800s that show roughly how many gallons of ethanol were consumed, you know, per capita per year. And the booziest on record for the United States was in the 1830s. And it was roughly seven gallons, okay, per person per year. <laughs> That's a lot of booze, man. So the prohibition era didn't start until, you know, 1919. And right around then already just, and, and so from the 1830s to 1919, booze was legal. There was no thing that, you know, nobody stepped in and made it illegal. And already it went from seven gallons down to 1.96 gallons. Okay. So prohibition lasts, you know, a handful of years and it ends. And today we're still only at around 2.75. So if prohibition were able to, actually do something to stop addiction it would have done that during the, that period of time but i think a, a decrease what we saw from 1830 to 1919 of damn near six gallons a year per person kind of tells me that the american public the individual is more than capable of determining what's best for them at a given time than than anything else so the law doesn't you know, go ahead, Captain. Or there's a, yeah, sorry. Uh, there's another thing that you're talking about right now is also it regulates. Uh, and I know that's a nasty word for libertarians, but it's really important that you know what product you're getting. So and that's this piggybacks off all three of you. If you have a legal means of producing, selling and consuming these products, you know exactly what the product is you're getting. You'll actually wind up seeing a decrease in addiction, a decrease in deaths, a decrease in adverse effects from this stuff because you're not accidentally overdosing or getting contaminated product. So, and I know this ties over into, you know, insurance being overwhelmed by the medical issues and everything, but that is, that's absolutely not the case because if you've got a more stable product, because, you know, you use it once, you know how it's going to affect you, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, it's got me right where I need to be. And that's the way we are with alcohol right now. And it winds up again, reducing the rate of addiction and such, because people can a lot easier recognize when they have a problem, when they know what they should be expecting. Nobody wants to be addicted. Nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to die. Um, 
that's not why they're doing this as a general rule. Um, but everybody wants to escape and everybody is escaping. Some people are using these products without knowing what they're using and getting ill-informed before they do. And it winds up causing these addiction and adverse health effects that we get. Right. And to uh, just to add a little bit more, because I know that there's going to be some listeners out here that are pretty pro um, prohibition and things like that. And one, one article that gets circulated around a lot is um, the, uh, New York School of Medicine, New York University of New York School of Medicine came out with a study in November of 2019 that showcased that states, um, so they did polling prior to legalization and then after legalization that showed a 26% increase in marijuana use whenever it was legalized for recreational. And what, but one of the things with this, and one of, if, for those of you that just are either blind to the obvious or are unaware you're very, very unlikely to answer a poll taker saying that you're doing something that's illegal versus. Yeah, man, I'm on weed right now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so when you talk about those stats and those numbers, that's something, that's something that gets circulated around a lot. Like look at this, you know, this medicine journal said there was a 26% increase in these States. Well, that's not really what happened. It's they're not looking at, anything outside of polling numbers. And so they're literally just calling people and be like, Hey, do you smoke weed? Uh, no, you know, and then once it's legal, yeah. You know, so that's 26% more people that were being more honest. It's probably not an increase that much. I, I can honestly tell you, I don't know of anybody that has ever tried weed specifically because it was legal. I mean, you can look at the 2016 elections as a, as a testament to your uh, what you just brought up at the polls. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a solid point, too, because, we, you know, as we saw in 2020, drugs won the election, <laughs> right? You saw Oregon go fully decriminalized. You saw a handful of states that also voted for full legalization. I mean, it's moving in that direction slowly but surely. So that's one thing to keep in mind as this trajectory continues, as these policies start to change, there is going to be some fear mongering and little stats. And here's the thing with the poll. You can make those numbers show whatever you want it to. You ask pointed questions. You ask it in a very deceptive manner, you know, and, and that's just those pollsters are are paid to get a certain result. So what we need is we need more medical data, you know, more to know, because here's the thing to, to go on to, to what y'all were talking about, you know, with dare, I didn't know how to not get addicted to heroin. Right. So the only knowledge that I had in the shooting gallery was, it was the going rule, the three day rule where the junkies would tell each other, don't use more than three days and you won't have to kick. Like that's not, it's not scientific. You know what I mean? Like it's good luck. Science. You, that's bro science. That's exactly right. And so, um, you know, what we need is the medical community to be able to freely weigh in and offer tangible information and data to, to the public. So, and, you know, to, to couple that with retail, being able to have a open air market to where they can freely tell the consumer, this is what you're about to consume. And the consumer has the security of knowing that, you know, there is a verbal contract that is, that has happened in that exchange. It's like we were talking before we were talking about how much weed changed and we're like, I mean, that's a perfect example of that. Like, look, look like me and you drew, we, we've talked in our episode and how we were stoners back in the day. And now we don't even know what we're looking at these days. Cause it's so gone so scientific and it's just 
you know, every option you could possibly think of, you know? Right. Um, and that's the thing though, too. Like I can walk into a dispensary. I, I haven't tried the medical weed, but I have had a job that it required me to go in there and deliver some items, you know, and I could talk to these people across the counter and they're using this language straight out of a freaking chemistry book. Like I don't understand, but they are very knowledgeable. Like they know what they're talking about, you know, whereas like how it is now, if I go buy some heroin, I'm like, how good is this stuff? They're like, Oh, real good. <laughs> that's all the information <laughs> I'm going to get, you know, you know, the, whereas with this weed that's out here, you know, like, Oh, this is ethically sourced and you know, it has this and that in it and it's sativa or indica, blah, blah, blah. So, um, but on that point of if drugs are legal, drug, drug addiction will be widespread. I feel that we have done an adequate job of putting that one to bed. So um, anybody else have anything you want to chip in on that before we move on to the next one? Uh, one last thing when it comes to the medical reviews, because um, you were talking about the medical reviews and the science. One thing, once, once this legalization happens and you start seeing these come out, I just want everybody to keep in mind that um, we are very, very much aware that scientists in the 60s and 70s were paid off by sugar corporations to say that sugar wasn't the problem and it was fat. So if you see these medical journals come out, look at who's funding them. That's a and solid if it's pharmaceutical too. companies that would be taken out of business because of legalization of some of these drugs, then think twice about it. Yeah, it's a government science that got us the food pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah. food pyramid. All right, moving on to the next one legalization will lead to more property crime because people will be needing to get their next fix. Rex, what do you say? Okay. So I got three points on this. First of all, the reason that property crime exists is because we are in a black market where rates are exceptionally high. Uh, again, these people can't get help. Um, they have a harder time getting out of trouble. They wind up with criminal cases. And I'm going to give you a perfect example of this in my own family. Um, I have a, a close family member who was addicted to methamphetamine for a decent period of time. She got caught, got busted, had to go into the legal system, went into the legal system with now $2,500 in fines, a $500 court fee, and then all of the other associated costs that she got um, assigned, you know, her rent and her utilities, which she still had to keep on. Uh, child services. So now she's got $20,000 in bills after she got out of the legal system the first time. What's she going to do? She can't get a job in the financial industry because you can't hire a felon. Um, so she's working at Subway and making minimum wage with $50,000 in legal bills. So she winds up getting caught up in a credit card theft scheme with her partner in crime at the time. And that gets her put back into the criminal system and piling on even more medical bills while she's not earning an income. So a lot of the property crime that takes place centered around drugs has absolutely nothing to do with the drugs and everything to do with people trying to recover and get out of the issue. Uh, secondly, when you have a legal system, you have regulation and oversight. In other words, like in the pawn industry, they talk about fencing criminal products. That is something that can be actively pursued and investigated because these businesses are on the up and up. Uh, all of the financial transactions are recorded, the sources of the income, the payouts, all of this stuff gets reported because now it's a legal system that's in there as part of the state. So 
you will see an increase in property crime. But again, this goes back to what Kevin was saying last time, that it'll be a statistical increase only because the reporting is now available and taking place. And it's, it's not a drug dealer stealing from a drug user or vice versa, which gets reported as a property crime because grandma's house got broken into over this drug deal gone bad. Um, the third thing that we need to talk about on this is the fact that when drug use goes down after it is legalized and everything is more stable and people are able to get the help that they need, uh, that just proportionally will cause a decrease in property crime associated with specifically with drug use and not black market practices. Um, and again, that is because there will be fewer numbers of people that are using illicitly that are not able to get help other than something from the black market or a criminal activity. That's great points, man. You came prepared on that one. I like it. Good stuff. All right. What's up, Jose? I got a few points. I think uh, I feel like you may have, uh, Rex may have touched on this a little bit, but I think generally legalizing uh, i mean in a true sense obviously a lot of people bring up the point of that like when you legalize you bring in taxes and stuff i'm not a big fan of taxes so i mean if we that wasn't the case then it kind of takes out that argument but either way even with that generally speaking i think the free market in in general reduces the prices so if you reduce the prices you reduce the need to not even necessarily need maybe the want to be able to go and uh, to steal stuff or whatever. And on the other hand, you also have the, you know, if you're locking people up, you're putting them in a worse economic situation where it makes them more likely to go that route. Also, I mean, I generally want to, I don't like to hang out in the pragmatic area. I generally like to make the moral argument. So usually when you take, make prag uh, pragmatic arguments, you end up being caught in the weeds with, you know, stats and stuff. And that, that's, I mean, whatever, that's fair. There's a place for it. I generally like to hang out in the moral and morally speaking, it's kind of like, what, 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 this is kind of a non-point. Like, this is a, what, what, what are we going to do? Punish the motivation for a crime? Because the crime here is property crime. But it's almost borderline irrelevant. So it's like, we can still say people should be able to do drugs if they want to, while being like property crimes are bad. So it's just kind of a non-point there. And yeah, I mean, I just think that generally, like, you know, you make something illegal, you're going to drive the price up for it. You're going to also be throwing people in a cage, making them make less money, which, you know, you put someone in prison too, they it perpetuates drug using because, I mean, also one of the highest indicators of like being a drug user is being in a low economic uh, station, essentially, like, I mean, not to say rich people don't use drugs, but, you know, it, it definitely doesn't help when you're poor and you have nothing else going on in life. It's, uh, I mean, there's a famous experiment with mice, I think it were rats, where uh, they, they found that like rats that are in a terrible environment tend to do more more drugs and when they literally were giving them drugs but when you give them a nice happy environment they do less so i think someone's economic station really does you know determine that kind of stuff and not to say that like i said rich people don't do drugs because even then in those experiments the rats were doing drugs they were i can't, I can't remember i think they put cocaine in their water or something but they were still doing it but to a much lesser degree it was more recreational because like we went into in our episode, there's, I feel like there is a place for these kinds of substances, maybe not every substance and maybe not for every person, but a lot of these things, it's nothing wrong with if you want to smoke a joint or, I mean, there was a story recently with a guy who, uh, a college professor who used heroin. I've never done straight up heroin, but I mean, I know I did pills or opiates or just similar. I mean, me as an adult, I think probably, I mean, I don't mess with opiates now, but I could probably see myself being able to be mature about them and handle them in a mature manner. But as a uh, child, not so much because I'm a lot older than when I was using them before. 
But yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's, like I said, it's kind of a non-point, but even then, even if we accept the premise of like, uh, it still just doesn't check, I think. So, yeah. Is it? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I think, are you talking about that Ted talk? I don't with know. The I don't know. I've heard it in multiple, I've heard it in a few different places. I don't know this, the, 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 the all of it about it. I, I've seen it in Ted talk. I've seen it in a bunch of different places. I listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff. I've heard it brought up in a few different places. Well, I just a, know, oh, go ahead. It's it's a really interesting study on on where addiction actually you know formulates where where that begins, and mm-hmm. I mean you 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 hit the nail on the head with it because it's it's honestly very applicable in the situation. So much so, I believe I will put it in the show notes. Yeah, and they brought up. I mean, yeah, definitely be good to look it up because that was actually like a really uh, revolutionary like study because of the fact that it brought up that a lot of their preceding studies that typically they use rats for studies and a lot of their studies they've used for drugs have been completely wrong. Like essentially like, cause I mean, when people do, when scientists do experiments, they're generally trying to do their best to isolate all the factors. But it's one factor they never really took into account that the happiness of the rat and you put just one rat in a cage. I mean, rats are social creatures, so they're going to have a bad time. They're going to be more likely to use. And so people don't take these kinds of things into account. And so they kind of threw off a ton of the uh, scientific literature that preceded it. So the fact that these, this was a factor they weren't taking into account at all. So, yeah, hundred percent, man. All right. Good stuff. Um, Kevin. Uh, first of all, that experiment, you can find it on PubMed. It was done by Matthew D. Pohl um, by Beehive Pharmacol in 2012. Um, if you want to look that up. Um, I can I can give you the link so you can put it up in the description. Coming with the stats, I like it. Good um, deal. So the the point that I want to make about this is the legalization will lead to more property crime. It is that's it, it's really deceptive in the way that it's worded, um, because first of all that that definitely wouldn't happen. You know, like Rex pointed out, we may see that stat go up just because it's being reported that that's what it was for, um, and that that's pr- pretty arbitrary in in the whole thing, but. Once these drugs become more acceptable in society, you're going to have people that aren't as hard up to get them. Or if they end up, you know, they end up with an addiction or something like that and they need these things, then, you know, like, I don't know that I would loan somebody a thousand dollars to go buy some Coke. I mean, I might, but it depends on who they were. But I would definitely loan somebody that I didn't know a thousand dollars to go get some medicine if they were going to die because they didn't have it. And I think that the general populace would be more apt to that. I think that once you get to a point where, you know, it's acceptable and this is just the normal part of society, then you can, um, you would be able to accrue the economic means to get it more readily from different people. Because like Jose pointed out, you know, it is lower economic status is, is definitely an indicator for more drug use, not to say that people on the high end don't do it, but you don't hear about that as much because they have the money to afford it. So they don't have to do any of the other crimes. I don't know very many people that have been caught just for drugs. They got caught doing something else and then the drugs were there and then that was compounded in with it. And then that leads to a vicious cycle, you know? Um, And so that's why you don't see it as much with white collar, you know, if you want to call them white collar, because, you know, they, they already have the money. They're not 
as interested in, in these other things and they don't have to do those things in order to acquire them. So you don't hear about it as much, but I would venture to say that the drug use is pretty solid across all economic levels. You just hear about it less from the higher ups because they can pay off whoever, or they don't have to do these other crimes to, to get involved. Um, so you, I think you would have less property crime just because even if somebody did get into a bind, they're going to be more, there's going to be more assistance for them because it's going to be more acceptable. You know, I mean, we could eventually get to a point, it wouldn't surprise me if you had a free open market like that, where eventually you could get it financed or insured, just like you could medical, anything medical right now, because the list of drugs that can be replaced by recreate, by what we consider recreational illegal drugs right now is, is staggering. I mean, I know of people that were on four to five different antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety meds that are totally off of all of them with medical marijuana use. And that would just continue with recreational. You know, another thing about it is that we know that um, certain mental disorders kind of uh, people are self-medicating with these drugs, especially when it comes to stimulants and ADHD, um, BPD and things like that. So once those become readily available in the market, I think that you'll see because, you know, greed is good. Greed drives everything. I think once they see that the battle is lost, these pharmaceutical companies will start investing in these drugs and you'll start to see more financing and things like that. More competition in the market will bring the price down, even if you're not going to finance it, et cetera, et cetera. I agree. A hundred percent. Good points made all the way across the board. Um, I think Rex, you really nailed it whenever you talked about how whenever somebody gets caught as it is right now, they are put into that station in life with that scarlet letter of felon. And that kind of changes the playing field. Whereas beforehand, you know, they could go in and put an application, not have to worry about anything except for their work history. Well, now they're having to check that box. Yes, I have been, you know, convicted of a felony. Yes, I have, you know, this and that and got to write it out. And that sucks. It's hard. It's very tough, especially when you factor in court costs and fines. You factor in all the various programs that these people are having to pay for now all of a sudden. And the fact that they have to find a job that's going to be flexible enough to allow them to get off to go drug test at a moment's notice. Um, so it's no wonder that people tend to gravitate back towards the lifestyle that they're trying to escape. And that's because by design, it's set up that way. It's insidious. And Can we uh, talk about that for a second? 100%. Go for it. Um, because this is huge and it's a, it's an element of drug use that often gets left out of the conversation. I mean, both Jose and Kevin talked about it, but the fact is people don't use drugs because they're wanting to party or, you know, because they want to get higher because they want the thrill of doing something illegal. 99% of drug use is pure escapism. They are self-medicating to get out and stop thinking about a condition that is going on in their life. Even if they are a buttload rich person sitting on Wall Street, they are under such high stress and high tension all of the time that they need something to help them escape that level of stress to bring them back to a human point of view. So everybody that gets caught doing this has already got issues going on in their life that they're trying to deal with, whether it's a socioeconomic issue, uh, whether it's a racial issue, whether it's a job related issue, relationship issue, whatever it is, there is no cause of drug use that is helped by incarcerating the person that is using the drugs. 
it, it doesn't do anything but compound the issues that put them in that lifestyle to begin with. And the property crimes that associate with the drug use aren't really, they're not really a property crime in the fact that this person wants to steal from somebody else, that this person is just doing it out of you know, greed or envy or something like that. They are doing it because they are suffering. It is, it's in a way, it's like a starving person stealing a loaf of bread. So we really have to consider the motivations behind this when we start talking about, you know, what the policy effects would be because policy doesn't affect the action. It affects the motivation behind it. And uh, when you ignore the fact that these people aren't doing drugs to be high and celebrate and party and do something illegal just for the fun of it, that they are actually trying to deal with a condition that is going on in their life, it changes the conversation. So when you talk about property crime specifically, we are not saying that, you know, it's going to go down just simply because, uh, you know, people will be doing drugs legally and stuff. It will go down because people no longer have the need to do it. And that's what it is because these people aren't stealing things because they, you know, they like your car, so they're just going to steal it for a joy, right? They're doing it because they need it. It is something that is important in their head for their survival. And once you remove that, it removes the impetus for the property crimes that are secondary to the uh, initial drug use. Sorry, that's just something that really strikes me yeah, that I just wanted to make explicitly clear is that it's an entirely different thing than stealing your neighbor's whatever, no, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with it. And, and I think also, too, this is one of the points that we're going to address this evening. This is one of the ones that I find the, the more disgusting, you know, stances that people take. And it's because they kind of make this Disney-like villain of drug addicts across the board. And, you know, uh, me being in the recovery community, like I see the types of people who come in and granted, you know, some of them fit the stereotype, but there's also a lot of like soccer moms. I mean, I'm talking lower middle-class people who they, for whatever reason, either, you know, they got prescribed a little bit too heavily or, you know, whatever the case may be, they're never going to steal anything, but they want an escape out. And they, you know, they're not getting the, the kind of answers that they need to get from the, from the criminal justice system. And so they find their way to us. And so breaking that stereotype is going to do us a lot of favors. And I think that as soon as we start as a society, because let's be honest, the society is going to have to change their mindset on drugs before this process will go fully because the, the, the voting body is going to have to vote these changes into place, you know? Um, and so in order for that to take place, they're going to have to change their position on what is a drug addict and what isn't. And, um, yeah, I kind of got off on a tangent. Kevin, do you have something else you were going to throw on that? I was just going to piggyback off of Rex because what Rex was bringing up about self-medicating and this, you know, they're doing it. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, for the, those of you that don't know, he's, he's a big, he's basically kind of like a, a god amongst drug users and stuff like that. He had a quote that said, we're all reaching for whatever we want, for whatever we can find to dull the pain. And most of the time, we don't want, even want whatever that is. We just want to not be miserable. And I think mm-hmm. that that sums it up a hundred percent. I do want to push, maybe not push back something the right way. I do. I think it might almost be a little bit semantic uh, uh, from you guys' point. I, I do think it's not, 
I don't know if it's necessarily healthy to look at it in a binary fashion. Cause I've, I, and I'm not actually saying you were, maybe I misheard because because we were talking about in the context of property crimes. So I do think there is to put everything as a, an escapism. I don't think it's right. I think there is people who do it for fun and do it, you know, whether it be alcohol, weed, whatever, you know, there is some, but I mean, there might be semantics because you can make the case that, you know, escapism or fun is kind of the same thing. Because why do you have fun? You mean, it, I mean, it is kind of almost a semantics thing. I, I could see where you get at. I just want to make sure people don't get like a binary thing out of this. I do think there is, you can be in a perfectly healthy spot and be doing drugs. I mean, it depends on the drug, depends on the amount of the drug. I mean, I, I just, I don't, I feel like it doesn't behoove to be like one extreme or the other. I, I do think it's good to somehow to weigh both sides, but I get what you're getting at. I just want to make sure nobody got that out of that. At least, I mean, maybe that's what you meant. I mean, that, but this is at least my perspective on the matter that I do think there is some, so there is a place for there to be healthy drug use in some, in some, end, some sense, you know, I don't think, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I mean, maybe I misheard you or maybe it was just because you're saying the context of property crimes. So, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, let me clarify on that because I'm, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I smoke marijuana on occasion. I do it because it's fun, because I enjoy it, because I like it. But I mean, truth of the matter is I am still doing it as a form of escapism, something different to, you know, throw me out of my normal everyday routine. But yeah, it is recreation and there is an appropriate place to use it. There is a healthy degree of self-medication. But I think most often what you find in addiction is that somebody who is continually needing that change and they, they get to that point where they are addicted to it. And then that becomes the monkey on their back instead of their high stress job or their low economic status or whatever that becomes becomes the all-consuming concern. And, um, and I think that's where we run into a lot of the trouble with property crimes and such is when people fall into that routine instead of their day-to-day -day life routine. But no, you're absolutely right. I think there is room for healthy use of every drug. Um, cocaine, methamphetamine, even though they don't have a medical use, they do have a, a altering effect that could be considered a medical use when used in the correct context and used appropriately. And again, prohibition is what prohibits you from being able to do so. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Yeah. It was a little bit of semantics because like I said, fun is kind of an escapism in and of itself. So I, I get what you're yeah. saying now. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll echo Rex's point. The, the only thing that, that I would throw in there is I think that what, you know, semantics, like you were saying, there's, I think that neither of us were trying to point out like the guy that smokes weed at a party. I can tell you whenever I was heavily using drugs, you know, throughout different periods of my life, I was doing it because I was hurting. And so when you're talking about heavy addictive use that would lead to property crimes or something like that, that, that was what I was referring to. I think that there's definitely, I've had a lot of fun on Coke at parties for no reason other than to just have fun. But <laughs> But I've also been like nose bleeding, you know, don't want to do any more, but need to because I don't want to feel anything several times before, too. So I think that I think it goes both ways. But me personally, anytime that I've done heavy, heavy use has been to, to cope with something. Exactly. I just didn't want people to get the idea we were looking in a binary fashion where it is kind of a spectrum thing. But I did not necessarily yeah. that I thought you were. It's just I could see someone misinterpreting that. I just want to clear it up. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. That was a good call. <laughs> well, that was good points all the way around. Um, I think we really nailed that one. Anybody else have anything you want to chime in before we move on? All right. So next one coming up.
child neglect and infant addiction due to drug addiction during pregnancy will take a sharp upturn. Rex? You know, we've already talked about that. The people that are using drugs are using them right now. Um, There will be other people that try them. But again, this goes back to the motivation conversation. And I think this is the underlying theme in everything that we talk about. Uh, I have known people in my life that have consumed alcohol while they were uh, pregnant, while they had children in their care, so on and so forth, et cetera. I think most of us have had a glass of whiskey while our children were in bed asleep upstairs or a beer or whatever your other uh, mechanism of choice was. And again, this is a place where we're going to have an opportunity to give accurate education and understanding of the mechanisms behind it, what people are actually doing and provide those alternatives. We're not going to have a sudden upsurge of people just because methamphetamine is legal. People are not going to go out and do it because they get pregnant, especially if it's a wanted pregnancy, they're going to want to do everything they can to maintain the health of that child. Legality does not lead to motivation. Legality is a response to motivation. So, uh, yeah, it's just a ridiculous thought to think that your normal average everyday citizen is going to go out and decide to get coked up while they're pregnant or with their two kids in the backseat just because it's legal now. That is not what motivates people. And we have way too many examples historically of prohibition coming and going that tell the opposite story. It's, it's the same arguments that we've had so far. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. There is no data behind the idea that use is going to increase in those situations. And there is absolutely no data to suggest that the law has actually prevented any of those situations from occurring right now. Quite the contrary, the majority of children that are currently in the system here in the state of Oklahoma, it's something like 75% of them are in there because the parent is in there on a drug charge. So to suggest that it's going to lead to an increase is patently false. And quite the contrary, it's going to lead to families being put back together because these people are going to have the opportunity to get the treatment that they go for. They're not going to have the criminal records. They're not going to have to fight it in a criminal court before they go back to the, the family attorney or the caseworker and say, hey, uh, I'm clean now. Let me get my kids back because it'll all be up and up, right? It's a medical process that they'll be like, I have gotten treatment for the medical issue that prevented me from treating, from taking care of my children. And it's a simple matter at that point of, okay, here's your kids. And it's, it doesn't have the stigmas that we've been talking about with the other issues. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, the stigma that comes along with it, man, that you want to talk about a corroding thread in somebody's life, my God. Uh, But great points, Rex. Jose. Oh, I clicked. I thought I was muted there for a second still. <laughs> um, no, um, I think I'll probably be touching a lot of the same spot, but points he was hitting on. But I just, I, the biggest thing is like, what is finding these individuals or throwing them in a cage? How is that anyway going to help? So, like, I mean, if like a lot of people accuse libertarians, ANCAPs, anarchists, whatever, of being utopian thinkers, and it's like, it's not one or the other. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a scope. And for this, it's preferable. Like, I mean, if, it's never good if there's someone who's, a drug addict who's pregnant or has a child. It's just not good, but they exist. And what is the better thing that will work for them? Throwing them in a cage, finding them, or, you know, like 
or not doing that, I guess, essentially. Like, I know, like, one thing I was thinking through this is, like, he mentioned the stigma. If you remove the stigma, that'll help them get to a point where they can go get help. You know, and like we went to before with economic stations, you're just lowering their economic station by finding them and stuff. I just, for the most part, I just don't even really get how throwing this person in a cage. And you also, I mean, it's the same thing as applies to a normal person, but say with like a pregnant individual, it's even more so because like you have the externality of them literally having another human being inside them and what you're going to throw them in a cage and that's going to somehow help. Like, and this is a little bit personal for me because my wife, I actually, I uh, had step-parent adoption, my oldest, and she was underage and was in juvie for drugs uh, with our oldest. And so, like, she was literally pregnant in juvie. Luckily, she, she stopped using drugs, but I don't see how that, like, situation in any way helped her. Like, if anything, it put her in a, I mean, really, if it hadn't been for her personal decision to stop because she had a child, if she had just been someone who doesn't care about that, if anything, it would probably made her more likely to continue to use drugs because she still had access to drugs at those locations she went to. So I just I, I don't I just don't see how that would help. And like and for example, she's there. She's she's been turned down for jobs for her criminal record straight up related to that. And you got to take into account, like if we had met, she would be on her own with a child trying to get jobs and they're able to find on her record that she has that. So it mean people just don't think about the externalities. They just think if we just punish things that they'll just magically go away. And that's not how things work. So yeah, that's all. Yeah. Have anything else smart to say on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, you nailed it, man. Good job. Uh, Kevin. Uh, I'm going to echo a, a lot of the same points uh, that everybody has, you know, it's, it's a pretty, the, the thing with this is that it's pretty open and shut. I mean, the, it's one of those that can be batted down pretty easy. One, People that are not using drugs currently are not going to start just because it's legal to piggyback off of what we were talking about earlier. If somebody is going to be using drugs and that is going to cause them, that's going to lead them to neglect their children or they're going to do it while they're pregnant. They already have some type of mental issue, some type of pain that they're trying to cope with. And that's going to be there regardless. They're just going to take a handful of Xanax a day, which you can get while you're pregnant instead of smoking weed. They're just going to continue their Adderall prescription instead of their meth, instead of buying meth from whoever. These things are going to continue and they're currently happening. We just call these drugs different names. That's all that it is because one is prescribed by a doctor and one is not then they're using it to treat the same thing. You take Xanax for anxiety, you smoke marijuana for anxiety. One of them will make you super hungry. And one of them, you know, you might black out and wreck your car with your kids or wake up in another state or, you know, wake up in a dumpster trying to re-enter Earth's atmosphere. Who knows? I mean, things can get wild. So I just don't, I think that that argument you know, people that are going to do that, they're already going to do it and they already have some type of pain. The only difference is that whatever it is that they're using as their coping mechanism now is legal. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. And uh, I was trying to pull up the stats here on something and I was unable to, so I apologize, but <clears throat> we all know that Smoking during pregnancy has reduced dramatically since 1990. I mean, that's just, that's a given that's across the board. Socially, it's looked at as something frowned upon. You know, if you see a pregnant woman outside of, you know, a, a store or, or something smoking a cigarette, she's getting some nasty looks. But um, the, the only hard data that I can nail down is that in, in 1986, uh, the pregnancy rate 
you know, smoking during pregnancy rate was 44%. And in 1996, it, it dropped down to 29%. Okay. So granted, you know, as we were talking earlier, polling rates, blah, 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 all that. But, you know, that's the only data that I can get my hands on. That is without government intervention. You know, that is without laws being passed that you cannot smoke during pregnancy. That is just public information was offered. Pregnant mothers, you know, uh, received this information and made the best decision for themselves and their unborn child. And I think that that holds true with a post decriminalized or legalized marketplace. If nothing else, there will be more information that's along the lines of reality rather than fear mongering where mothers are going to especially know what is what is safe and what is unsafe to partake in while they are pregnant. And so I would I would hazard to say that uh, this this argument is is very, very shoddy at best. And there's a lot of holes in it. And uh, yeah. Any of you guys got anything else you want to throw on top of that before we move on? I just want to know where that e argument even came from, because there is there cannot be anything scientific that indicates that there's nothing psychologically that indicates that there's nothing in uh, economically that indicates that that would even ever be an issue. Why does that argument even exist? Because it's utterly ridiculous. It's one of the stupidest things that a person can say in all <laughs> actuality. It's like automatically assuming that every woman that gets pregnant cares absolutely nothing about the health of their unborn child. And uh, I, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's no, just a bad argument. This, uh, these, these arguments that I got, I, I pulled them from a mixed body of people um, back when I had Facebook still. And I had a lot of people, a lot of these actually came from people who are currently in recovery. And so, you know, that, that was one of the ones that was, brought up more than more than a few times but yeah you know here's the thing too is that a lot of these are involved in emotion a lot of them are, are involved in feelings and it's not based on reality whatsoever it's just you know people have an idea in their head and they're running with it and so um, unfortunately you know whenever that 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 occurs whenever that emotion gets involved you know people don't use their their brain too hard i mean their heart it, it kind of builds off previous fallacies though too i mean if you put yourself in that that mind you can see why because it just like it kind of you know builds upon it you know you have it's like the first question was if drugs are bad drug addiction will be widespread and rampant so if you accept that premise you can get all sorts of other premises out of it so i can see how someone would say that because i mean child neglect and infant addiction already happens so if you already then take the assumption that somehow drug legalization makes it worse it's just that's kind of why it's like important to bat these things down at the source because it just you can stack fallacies upon fallacies on top of things so yeah absolutely all right. Well, um, I'm going to move on to the next one. And for those listening and, and for you guys as well, I, I apologize if it feels like we're kind of covering the same ground over and over again. Like Jose just said, these are kind of built on top of each other, but they, they do provide um, opportunities for particular nuance with each you know iteration. And the next assertion is the strain on the healthcare system due to increased overdoses will cause insurance rates and medical rates to skyrocket. Rex, what do you say? Okay. Now this one is a lot easier because we do have actually numbers on the number of people that have health insurance and the amount of money that the healthcare system is currently spending 
on addiction, accidental overdoses, so on, so forth, et cetera. So once you realize that the actual number of drug users will decrease, the amount of drugs used decrease, then the amount of everything associated that will decrease, including healthcare costs. Secondly, once people, and this more pertains to the middle and upper classes, but once these people don't get felony charges anymore and they're not going from their $60,000 a year job to $25,000 a year job, they can still afford their health insurance and they can afford to get the treatment ahead of time. Third, they're getting higher quality drugs. They know what they're taking. They're not taking street drugs. So I don't remember the percentage, but there is a notable percentage of uh, accidental overdoses that occur simply because the drug was super strong or there were additives to the drug or it was mixed with something else lsd put on uh, sprinkled onto their marijuana joint so uh, with all of those factors taken out outside you know emergency treatment is always more expensive than preventative treatment that's why health insurance companies currently pay for preventative care because they have to pay out more in the long run once you do that so if you factor in all of those things that we've already discussed, it is completely clear that healthcare costs and expenditures will actually decrease because they are getting outpatient treatment and a methadone prescription instead of sitting in the hospital for two weeks from a heroin addiction or some other um, overdose that puts them in intensive care, requires dramatic intervention in order just to keep them alive. Not to mention the fact, the fact that as soon as they go back to the street, they're going to be right back in the same cycle they were in before, maybe coming back two, three, or four times. So again, that one's just a numerical anomaly that is an utterly ridiculous argument because we have the statistical data to show otherwise. Fantastic points. Good stuff. Jose? Not to be too glib, but I'll kind of give a short answer on this one. It's uh, this is really just a good argument against a single payer healthcare. Obviously, you know, like you look at the first part of it. I don't even accept. I don't. We we've batted this down this whole entire podcast. So the the first half, the first premise is not something we accept. So whatever. But assuming we accept that, it's just you just made an argument against single a uh, single payer healthcare to a group of people who I would assume with this group aren't fans of single payer healthcare. So I mean to while it isn't really on topic, it's just kind of, I mean, really it's kind of literally the first question all over again, because in order for this to have any sort of really us to argue at all, you have to accept the first premise, which is the, the if drugs are legal, drug addiction will be widespread and rampant, which we've already batted that down. But if, so yeah, like if we were to accept that, then it's just, I mean, then they kind of have a point. That's a fair point. But the problem is, but we also don't agree with the second second part of it that that shouldn't be a thing. So I mean that opens up another whole can of worms, which I'm not trying to make this a single payer healthcare episode. But yeah, I mean then that in in our society we would wish for this, assuming that even in this we somehow accept the premise that that uh that legalization of drugs increases the uh the influx of increases overdoses. Even then we would still be like, well, we're against single payer healthcare. So I, what what are we doing here? You know, I mean, I know it's a little glib, but there's really not much to this one since we've already kind of attacked it since, like I said, this kind of layers on. So, but yeah. That's a good point, man. I'm glad you got the jab in on the single payer thing right there. That's good. Kevin. I think most of it's already been covered. The one thing that I really want to 
put into perspective though, is um, we automatically think of drug overdoses when we think of drug use, right? We always think, but we do it in terms of heroin and things like that. If you look at the top 50 drugs for overdosing, Tylenol is consistently in the top three. The LD50 for it is only 2,000 milligrams. Most pills are dosed at 325 milligrams. I've taken 10 a day, which is well over the LD50. So when you look at these overdoses, based on it didn't go up when we brought Tylenol to market. It didn't go up, you know, all of these things. You also, another thing that you need to keep in mind is a lot of overdoses occur because people are limited in when they can get these drugs, right? Like you can always find it, but you know, you're going to, you, you have to say you get, let's say you get an eight ball of Coke, right? Well, you know, you're only going to be doing that for a certain amount of time because you don't know when the next high you're going to get is right. So if it's readily available and you can just go to Walmart and buy it, you're not going to be buying as much at a time. So you're not going to be as tempted to use as much in one sitting. Also, like Rex said, the drug is going to be much cleaner. You're, you're not going to get something that's been stepped on 10 or 15 times before it got to you and then accidentally get some that only got stepped on twice. And, you know, you're going to do two or three grams and end up overdosing because it's so much more pure. Everything's going to be the same. You know, you're not going to be going to your plug and being like, hey, how good is this? Oh, it's great. It's the best I've ever had, you know you're going to actually go into a pharmacy or a Walmart or whatever. And you okay, this is 50 grams of whatever, you know, and you'll be able to tailor your dosage much more accurately on top of that, because right now, you know, like you brought up earlier, the three day rule. Well, there's a lot of bro science out there about a lot of stuff. Like I know, I know people that, Will, uh, one thing that I've heard all the time is, man, if, you, if you're partying and you're taking ecstasy, you got to drink orange juice because that'll, that'll keep you from overdosing. Orange juice will keep you from overdosing because of the vitamin C. That's a real thing out there. That's a real belief that people have. And if we had more accurate data that was more readily available, you wouldn't have people doing dumb stuff like that. 100% agree. I, I've heard the opposite. Well, not the opposite, but a different reason for drinking the uh, orange juice is because it enhances the trip because of the vitamin C. Uh, I've heard that about anything that had hallucinogenics involved in it. But to kind of piggyback on, on all of your points is we can even agree with the first assertion that we made here, that we, that we approach, and that is that drug addiction would be more rampant. Here's the problem with the current marketplace. Okay, we'll, we'll bring up a celebrity, and I'm not trying to prop up you know, somebody's death as, as, you know, a dunk, but Patton Oswalt, we all know him. He's stand up comedian. His wife died because she bought Xanax pills that were actually laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl is increasingly becoming present in, in a whole list of different narcotics in the market today. And that is because you can't buy, uh, you're not going to Walmart, like Kevin said, and, and, and buying, you know, your, your Xanax pills or whatever the case may be, or your heroin, you're buying it from a guy in the alley. He's just telling you, yeah, this is really good stuff. Whereas in a decriminalized, legalized marketplace or gray market, 
you're going to know what you're buying. You're going to know what you're purchasing and you're going to know, okay, this is what I can take and this is what I should not take, right? So I, even if more people started using, even if more people got hooked on drugs, overdose rates would plummet. I would say, and this is just pure rhetoric. This is just me <laughs> shooting from the hip. I would say a drop in half. I really would. Nobody goes out trying to overdose. Nobody. Zero addicts want to overdose. You know, they want to get as close as they can, but how do you me measure that? You know, we don't have, there's not a little lab in each little shooting gallery that's like, you know, testing the quality of, of the dope. I mean, literally it's, you know, put it in a spoon, draw it up, jam it off. And you know, how that person reacts is how I know how much to put in my own arm, you know? And um, with, with a gray market, we wouldn't have that guessing game. You know, we'd remove a lot of question marks from these products. So yeah, this is a trash argument and uh, it's one that, that is easily put to bed. Um, you guys got anything else on that? One thing that I would just throw in there to just to put it into more of a perspective to for overdose, a lot of people overdose. And like we brought up before, you know, economic status, economic status ha has a lot to do with drug use. Well, right now, basically, the more money you spend, the more pure of a product you're going to have. Right. So that's why you don't see as many like you look at celebrity overdoses like you brought up, you know, like look at juice world. Um, you know, the, I mean, Amy Winehouse, there's been a couple of them, but if you look at the vast amount of them that do drugs versus the ones that overdose, and then you were to look at that on like a scale, like I have so many friends that overdosed, you know, and it's because they have access to a more pure product. If this was a gray market, everybody's having access to that. And so it, it almost levels the playing field of economic stature. That's a good point as well. Are you, are you trying to say that, hold on, can you expand on that a little bit more? I guess I'm not following you. All that I'm saying is you, if you look at the amount of rich people that do drugs and the amount of them that overdose versus the amount of poor people that do drugs and the amount of them that overdose, it's substantially higher based on the lower end because the higher end people can get more pure products. Right. And so okay. it, once the, once the market is gray or legal, decriminalize, whatever you want to call it, more people are going to have more access and, and it will level that out. Because right now you have this really uneven playing field when it comes to drug use, where we've brought it up before in this podcast that you don't hear or see as much rich people being quote drug addicts. And a lot of that has to do with they get better products. You know, you're paying an exponential amount more for a better product. However, just look at the amount of celebrities or rich people or, you know, it, really anybody. Their economic status determines how, mu how much they can get and how pure the product is versus a lower end. So, like, we know black tar heroin, for example, versus white china, okay? You're, it's a more pure product, but you don't see a lot of lower economic status people getting this white china heroin. You know, it's only the rich people who don't really overdose because they know what they're getting. That's a solid, solid point. All right. Thanks for expanding on that for me. Um, yeah, that's a good point. All right. We're, we're going to do the last one. This is the last one. And this was kind of a, a, a late to enter the party, but had somebody bring this up that they have heard multiple people say that they do not 
agree with a decriminalized or legalized marketplace because they don't want their next door neighbor legally cooking meth. Rex? Well, we're talking about addiction versus manufacturing. If this is a clean market, if it's a legal market, or even a gray market for that matter, you already cannot set up a commercial manufacturing lab in a residential area. Um, if you live to an industrial area, you are living next to something that is going to kill you a lot faster than a chemical methamphetamine production lab, because I can promise you that those industrial waste products that are coming out of your local refinery, <coughs> Mr. Hobby, are much more toxic to you than anything that's going to come out of a meth lab. And I know that there's some, you know, uh, some highly dangerous chemicals that are byproducts of the the methamphetamine production and you'll be able to smell it immediately, but those aren't going to happen in your next door neighbor's house. Those are going to happen in a manufacturing facility that is regulated by the state as much as I hate it. It's going to be regulated by the state and they are going to have health and safety regulations that they have to follow. They're going to have to have industry best practices that they have to follow to get their methamphetamine producers associations of America certification as a gold star producer. You know what I'm saying? Um, all of the, the health and safety things that occur uh, from a legal production facility are going to be there. Otherwise, you are going to have people like your next door neighbor cooking shake and bake, blowing out the side of their house and your windows or sending uh, the noxious vapors out of the vent that they have jerry-rigged out of their kid's bedroom because they're producing next door. So between the licensing requirements and the zoning that we have in our current political system and the health and safety regulations that occur from the federal government and industry best practices, you know, the private industry standards, uh, it's not going to increase. It's actually going to decrease because people are going to take less risk if they can take less risk and make the same money out of the deal. So it's actually going to decrease the number of people cooking meth next door. Solid Not points. to mention they're going to be driven out of business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jose? I mean, it would be for the same reasons that I don't, my wife doesn't grow weed here. She has a medical card. She can go get it. I mean, it's it, it wouldn't make any sense for a meth user to make their meth when it's fully legal. Like you can just go right down the road to Walgreens or whatever. I mean, it's in this, in this situation. So, yeah. I mean, that's really all I'm saying. I, mean, it's not, I don't really feel like there's a whole, a whole lot much to this one that we haven't covered, but yeah. All right. Kevin? Uh, to piggyback off what Jose said and, and a little bit of what Rex kind of touched on it a little bit, but meth specifically, let's just look at meth specifically. First of all, most people start cooking meth in order to use meth. That would be gone because now you're going to have, like, you don't make Tylenol yourself. I don't know anybody that does. You could. I mean, the chemical, the, the chemical structure is right out there. You could do it yourself, but you don't because it's readily available and there are manufacturers that are already doing it. Why do they manufacture it? Is it because they really like using Tylenol? No, it's because they make money. So you're going to have, you're going to have people producing methamphetamine for a business. That will be their business. It's not their, they're doing it because they couldn't get anything better or, you know, they need it. They need to produce more, whatever they're going to be doing it in order to make money. And so there will be in, like Rex said, in an industrialized zone. And if you're talking about meth specifically, you're, 
most explosions, most fires, most of the things that occur is because we've increasingly tried to ban the things that are used to make methamphetamine. And so these explosions happen because they're making shit up as they go. Oops, sorry. That they're making it up. They're making it up as they go. They're combining these things. You know, you can't get red phosphorus anymore. Right. So then you had people that were breaking, um, you know, um, breaking into the old box style TVs and scraping the red phosphorus out of it, you know, and then once that went away, they had to switch to something else. So then they switched to an anhydrous base. And, and as this goes, the drug not only gets dirtier, but the manufacturing process gets dirtier. And to piggyback off Rex's point, you should be much more concerned from benzene levels coming from refineries than you should any meth lab. Without... But we write, we, we, we don't even think about that. That's not a, you know, and why? Because these, these companies are doing it. They're zoned in this industrial, you know, and so once this, once this is legalized, it's just, it's just not going to be the same. Drug users are not going to be drug manufacturers. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I, I am in agreement across the board. Excellent points. Um, I would also say that the problem that we see in the current marketplace with explosions that occur is the lack of information that can freely flow in between people who are prospecting, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, wanting to get involved in the business. I mean, there is, you can't just say, how do I cook meth on Google? Like there is no YouTube tutorials. Like it's just word of mouth, you know, and you, but you better hope that that person giving you, <laughs> giving you the information wasn't actually getting a, you know, a secondhand high while they were cooking because they may not remember that process. And, you know, you're talking about one drop of water getting in the wrong place in, in a specific cook and it's lights out, you know, it's a problem. Um, I would also say that I know a lot of alcoholics. I know a bunch of true to life alcoholics. I don't know of a single one that started a homebrew to feed their habit. So I am 100% in the camp that if somebody is starting to, you know, cook meth at home for whatever reason, they are doing so to make money. And so if they are already trying to do so with the financial gain in mind, I believe that they're going to do whatever they can to protect their investment. And that would look like making informed decisions, making sure they know what the hell they're doing prior to getting involved in it. So um, yeah, we put that one to bed pretty good. You guys got anything else on that? Yeah. Ironically, the only time you really see people producing their own alcohol is moonshine and that's illegal to produce. So, I mean, kind of serves our point even more, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 10-4. Man, this was everything I was hoping it would be. This is exactly because I did one of these episodes a while back and it was when I was first starting and I kept stuttering and, uh, uh, you know, all throughout it. But you guys brought some very real points to the table and uh, yeah, it's bedtime for the war on drugs. It's been bedtime for the war on drugs. So um, with that, we're going to wrap it up uh, and we'll just go go around in the same manner. Um, Rex, you got anything you want to plug? Hey, uh, you can follow our homesteading lifestyle over on Liberty Mountain Farms on Facebook. Has nothing to do with the drug issue, except for the fact that I can promise you I will be growing weed. Right on. What about you, Jose? I mean, you can. Um, well, first, off, I want to drop a, a redrop a plug again for our, the thing I dropped at the beginning of the episode I did with you uh, on this subject, but more of a, from a review type perspective. I feel like this complements it perfectly. So, 
you're going down this rabbit rabbit trail or whatever the term is that that would be another good one to check out but yeah i have the no way jose podcast i'm on youtube um give me the link um, i'll give you the link you probably put in your show notes or whatever but uh yeah i mean also where podcasts are at pretty for the most part i mean if i'm not let me know and i'll throw it up on there as well um yeah it's really all i got you can hit me up at the liberty movement global at gmail.com if you guys have anything you want if you want to you know you know you want to guest or you have some ideas or whatever yeah, it's really all i got yeah right on yeah absolutely go check out that episode what about you kevin um you guys can check out my podcast chief chats i do it with uh, todd hagopian um we haven't had a drug episode yet we've mainly been focusing on libertarian issues and things like that um if you want to follow me follow me on twitter uh facebook all that good stuff um i got a tiktok not very active not good at the dances that's it appreciate you guys <laughs> Right and that's a lie. I know you're good at the dances, Kevin. You, you <laughs> dance so pretty. <laughs> but anyway, guys, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I, I have the utmost respect for all of you. And I, I think I think we only said a cuss word twice. I screwed up in the first. And, and Kevin, you tossed it. Dude, we did good. Yeah. For a bunch of foul-mouthed sailor types. Like, we did really good. And so, yeah. <laughs> uh, if nothing else, we, we deserve uh, applause for that. But... Guys, thanks a lot and uh, look forward to talking to you guys in the future. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, and there you have it, guys. Uh, like I said, that was that was an awesome, awesome interview. Um, man, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have found individuals like Kevin, Jose, and Rex on this journey. Um, I'm very fortunate to have found people who not only know their stuff, but can also relay information in a very uh, cogent manner, right? Make make a good cogent argument. And um, I, I really feel like this is one of those episodes, man, that I'm going to be able to pass on to other people. And I really hope that you do the same as well. And you know what? If you happen to be one of those people who, I, I don't know how this got in your hands, it just happened to. And uh, you have any questions or you want to talk or heck, even if you want to debate, that's fine. Uh, my Twitter links are at clean underscore podcast and at Liberty Drew 84. And I am 100% on board with talking to anybody and everybody about this. And so I just want to thank you. You know, thank you for making it to this point. Thank you for listening to the episode and for having an open mind in doing so. And uh, yeah, not much more I can say about it. This is just a really solid, solid episode. I, I was happy to have done it. So um, with that, I'm going to go into the song of the day. This is what I always do with my episodes if you're new to the show. Uh, and, and just on the off chance that, that maybe it's a little bit different of an audience that I'm that, you know, this is going to cater to. I, I got a song that's not hardcore punk. I got a song that's a little bit more easy on the ears for anybody. And this is David Bowie's Life on Mars. And I picked this song because it's about a uh, girl who's kind of overwhelmed by the world around her and, and just kind of wants to escape a little bit. And, you know, we talked about that, that that's really the case for a lot of people who end up taking these narcotics and either getting addicted or not it doesn't matter like you know they're looking we're all looking for an escape at one point or another and so i thought this would be a very fitting song
for the episode. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you have a wonderful week. So here is Life on it's Mars. God awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a saddening for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.